Uh, guys, friends, Kent mentioned this is the last Sunday, last day of the year, last Sunday of the year. So here's my first question for you. So tomorrow, tomorrow, do you have a plan for meeting with the Lord in Scripture tomorrow? First day of the next year. So we talked on Christmas Eve that on Christmas Day you could have started reading your Bible the next morning. Maybe some of us did that and some of us didn't. I have left copies, 20 copies each, of three different Bible reading plans on the welcome desk in the lobby. So one, you can just, you can, Genesis 1, you'll read three or four chapters a day right through the year, read through the Bible in a year, just in order. There's another one that'll take you through three or four different passages every day, sort of in chronological order, and it'll take you through the Bible in a year. And there's a third one that's predicated on a five-day reading. So if you say, man, I, I, I know I'm going to miss weekends or whatever, five days, you can read through the same thing. Take one of each if you want. Figure out what works best for you. So if you don't already have a plan, there are some plan options, okay? So we want to take seriously, what, and where we'll be going in the message this morning is a bit serious too, on uh, living with an awareness of uh, where we are and when we are and uh, the ramifications for what that requires of us to live intelligently, faithfully, well. That's sort of where we're going. So certainly meeting with the Lord just at a relationship level is where all of that starts. You never get off your foundation. And the foundation for us is our relationship with the Lord through Christ. We meet with the Lord in the Scriptures. We meet with Him when we pray. Holy Spirit makes all that real for us. But we need a plan. We need a commitment, some way to do that regularly or, or everything else suffers to be sure. So think about that, pray about that, pick up some copies if you'd like on the way out. Uh, most of us in here are old enough, no insult intended, to remember uh, the occasion of 9-11, September 11, 2001. How many here remember where they were and what they were doing? Okay, wow, wow. Old crew. I mean, I, I knew, didn't think it'd be that many. Okay. You know, 9-11, this significant event, uh, not only for the United States and everybody in it, but for the world. You had this event that was singular on one hand, and, and life went on after 9-11, right? Sort of on one hand, life went on. But on another level, everything was changed. And so the nation changed, the world changed. Life was sort of seen a little bit from a different lens, a different perspective, because life as we'd known it had ended. There'd been an event, life as we'd known it had ended. We're going to be in a passage this morning that's not that dramatic, it's, and it will sound a little odd. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 25 through 31, and it's a passage on marriage. But we're going to start there to pick up a principle to apply it to our own set of circumstances today. And in case I falter along the way, or in case this comes out a little uh, foggier than, than clear, this is where we're going we need to understand the specific time and place in which we live. Uh, what are the conditions of the world that you and I call home? The place we get up, what, what do our conditions here now look like? And also where in the larger landscape of what God is up to, 
also, where are we in that? So sort of near and far, close to home and larger scale, what is our world like? And here's the thing, we do not live in a normal world. Now, whatever, however we characterize, define normal, that's a thing all to itself, right? The world we're in has changed significantly. It has pivoted, guys, and life has We've known it, some Christians, some conservatives have been accused of wanting to simply go back in time to the 1950s when everything seemed different and better. Now, there were good things in the 1950s to be sure. Life was not perfect on the other hand as well. But we're recognizing that life as we've known it is gone. And if we don't know that, we don't recognize the time and the place we live. So we'll make an appeal for that. What I I definitely don't want to do, I don't want anybody to go away depressed this morning, but I'm going to share information that could otherwise sound very depressing because I want to rightly characterize the title is is the present distress. That's a phrase that comes out of 1 Corinthians 7, but we want to take that to heart for ourselves because, friends, we live with a present distress. We want to be aware of that. We want to shape our life according to that. And also, Paul in that same passage is going to say, we not only have a present distress, but that present distress is occupying its own place in a much larger scheme of things, and we need to be aware of both in order to live life in a way that gives God His due and really allows us uh, being aware of that and where we want to end is that uh, it's a great time to be a Christian. And that when we see the current distress, it's not so that we get fearful or anxious. It's so that we steal ourselves for what's required in the time and the place God's put us. I mean, there are some ways in which Christians in the U.S. have it as easy as any Christians in history, right? Can't we talk about persecuted Christians uh, every Sunday? There are Christians around the world that are suffering mightily, losing life, limb, property, simply because they're Christ. That's not what we're facing But the world as we've known it is over, it's gone, it's not coming back, and we need to live aware of that, and we need to do so with confidence, because God's made us for the moment, the time and the place that we are. So being aware of these things helps us live strategically, thoughtfully, prayerfully, but also with confidence. So that's where we want to go this morning. If you've got your Bibles or your apps, this is 1 Corinthians 7, and Paul's, you know, he's really writing to the Corinthian believers about a number of topics. They're confused, and so he'll address one, then he'll address another. In all of chapter 7, it's about marriage and sexual relationships, and do I marry or not marry? And it's, it's regarding specifically people that are engaged but not yet married that he's addressing in this passage we're in here. So this is 1 Corinthians 7, starting at verse 25. He wrote, concerning the betrothed, this is ESV, and that word betrothed, it's Parthenon, it's virgin, so it gets translated different ways in different Bibles. So this is ESV. Concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, so I'm specifically addressing people that are engaged, they've got a plan for their life. We're engaged, we're going to get married. He says, oh, by the way, in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Don't seek to be free. Some in Corinth thought uh, being single is a more spiritual way to live, and, and so 
I'm married and I'm going to divorce so that I can be more spiritual. Paul says, no, no, no. Are you free from a wife? So I'm not married, but maybe I'm engaged. Don't seek a wife. So make that a consideration because of the present distress. If you marry, you've not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she hasn't sinned. It's not as if this is black and white. If I marry, I've done wrong. No, he's not saying that. But he's saying consider. Uh, Those who marry will have worldly troubles and I would spare you this. So when you get married, he's not saying marriage is a bad thing. But you're going to have responsibilities that you would not have as a single. He says, this is what I mean. Brothers, the appointed time has grown very short. So he's just moved from an acute issue. Now he's moving to a bigger time frame. The appointed time has grown short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. Now he's not saying be a lousy spouse, but he's saying you've got to live even as the married with a, with a frame of reference that takes into view all the other things that are going on around you. And you have to live with some discretion about how do I parse my time energy between my responsibilities at home and the responsibilities outside of my home. He says, those who mourn as though they were not mourning, those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, those who buy as though they had no goods, those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. So two time frames. This present distress, that's acute, it's in the moment, it's what's right in front of me, it's what's going on in my life today, and the present form of this world, the world as we know it, the age in which we live, two different time frames. So in the context of the passage, Paul is encouraging engaged couples to consider postponing their weddings. He recommends engaged couples extend their engagement period so each one can focus more singularly on pleasing the Lord. That's verses 26 through 28. Marriage, he says, will require more from each person than their current responsibilities do. And in view of the present distress, he says, let's think about that. Slow down, pause, let's think about that. Now, in, the, in context of 1 Corinthians, what's the present distress? Do you know? Because nobody really knows. The text does not say, what's the present distress? Doesn't say. There's lots of opinions, there's lots of guesses. There's some thoughts that there were repeating um, cycles of famine that went through this part of the world in the 40s and 50s. Maybe it's that. Maybe there was an acute persecution of Christians in Corinth at this point. But we don't know. Yeah, we don't know. So there's something they knew, and it's significant. And so Paul's saying, let's slow down perhaps the plans we've got for life because of what's going on in the moment, the cultural moment this present distress, let's think about that, let's figure this out as we're contemplating living for God in this. If you go back for ourselves, this is not hard to get a current example, not just 911, but if you go back just a couple of years to COVID, the virus comes in, the government uh, responses across, you say, man, all of life changed, right? So government's trying to figure this out, individuals are trying to figure it out, churches also, what do we do? So here's this virus, some people are getting sick, some people are dying, we think other people might be okay, there's a, there, there's a shot you can take, is that a good thing, is that a bad thing? So everybody's frame of reference had to adjust to what's the, the present distress, we had to figure things out. And think of, think of the way the world changed, and I'm specifically talking today about the U.S., our backyard, I'm not trying to go more broadly than that. 
But think about, so businesses that were going to open didn't. Guys, the number of businesses that closed under COVID was ridiculous across the country. Businesses shut down. Lifestyles changed. People had to sell homes. People packed up and moved. You sort of get the, the notion there was an acute distress and it changed what was going on for everybody and everybody had to reassess. What am I going to do? What does this look like for me going forward because of all these things? So that's a current example. Some big things going on and I've got to reassess what's going on for me and the decisions I'm making in life. That's acute. But then look at verses 29 and 31 again. So the present day distress is one thing, but then he also brings up this bigger issue of time. Verse 29, the appointed time has grown short. Verse 31, this pre the, the present form of this world is passing away. So, so you've got what's going on in the moment, but he also says in the bigger frame of things, uh, we're, we're in a world that, that isn't static, it's going somewhere, and the world as you've known it is going to end. And so really, we would say the big picture of this is, and we'll, we'll look at this, I've got a couple of verses here. <clears throat> the world as we know it will one day be gone entirely. You know, and, we're, and so we're looking for a new heaven and earth. That's the language of Peter. We're looking for a new heaven and a new earth. And before that, we're looking for the appearing of Jesus. We'll end our message time on that theme. We're looking for the appearing of Jesus. So big picture. 1 John uh, 2.17 says, The world is passing away with, along with its desires. The world as we know it, it's got a shelf life and it's winding down. 1 Corinthians 15.58, which is a passage in view of sort of resurrection and future things, big picture. He says, Brothers, be steadfast, immovable, abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that, the, you're, excuse me, that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. <clears throat> excuse me, that I'm, I'm laboring with a view to the end in mind. So Paul's bringing up two different time frames. One is acute, one is big picture. And based on both of them, he says, we need to assess the decisions we're making because of the present distress and because the nature of the world we occupy is literally changing. In regard to a present distress, as well as in view of our limited time on earth broadly, the apostle encouraged an examination of our time and place so that believers could live in the best way possible in regard to serving Christ. So I'm assessing the situation and God's call on my life so that I can make the best match possible between those two. So just a question before we move on. And maybe you'd look back at COVID, I don't know. But if you said, what's significant enough that might change in my world that, that I would say, I need to sit down and reassess all my plans? Uh, college, marriage, business, children, whatever those big rocks would be. And I'm saying, you know what? Things are so dicey, or there's such uncertainty, or, or things have changed so notably, I've got to reassess. I've in, and not just reassess because I'm compelled to or forced to, but because the, I need to change the way I'm seeing serving Christ because the world around me has changed. What does that look like? What might that look like for us? So here's the principle from that 1 Corinthians 7 passage. In view of the present distress and in light of the limited nature <clears throat> excuse me, of this present age and our time in it, we should view and interact in life with a detachment that allows us to keep Christ and Christ's things at the forefront of our minds and efforts. That is, a wisdom, a perspective, an understanding of where we're at, what's going on, 
and what God's call on my life is. That's, that's sort of the principle that we're deriving. That's what Paul's talking about. Second uh, Peter 3 says this, since all these things are going to be dissolved, since the world, the earth, the cosmos as you know it is going to burn, <clears throat> what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? So, so Peter's saying, look at where everything on earth goes. What is the implication for the way we see and live life? Holiness and godliness. Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. So I'm living with this expectation of Christ and seeing Christ and Christ's return. According to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. So we're living with this future expectation. We're aware of the time and the place we live, but we're looking forward to God's bigger, grander plan. And so out of that, near and far, we're adjusting our life plans so that we understand we're serving Christ as fully, as effectively as possible. So are we living wisely aware of the state of the world around us and the constraints affecting our ability to engage in life such that we're free to give Christ our first and best in the arenas in which we have responsibilities. In fact, in the same passage, Paul goes on to say his, his desire in what he's communicating is to secure undistracted devotion to Christ. Because you're, be, you're challenged in the moment, you're going to be challenged big picture, longer term, and he's saying the temptation is that our focus leaves Christ for lesser things. So he wants undistracted devotion to Christ. So this is, this is what you could mistake for depressing where I'm going next, okay? But we're not depressed because we know who wins. And, and God has equipped us for the time and the place for us to live successfully, right? Okay, so no, no distress, no depression. But, but we want to have a sense of what the current distress looks like for us so if we don't know that and i'm going to start with the church not the world that the church of jesus and again i'm speaking specifically to our backyard the u.s we you could go a little further and say the church in the west i'm not specifically speaking about the church in other areas but if you don't know that the church is distressed today in the west then we don't have our glasses on because the church is in a highly distressed state today. So let me just give you some facts. These are all facts from the last three years max, and some of these are from surveys as recent as a year ago. So I'll give you three, three uh, issues along this line. First, the portion of Americans who claim to be Christian is shrinking notably. Lots of people say the U.S. is a Christian nation. Whatever your take of history, it is not a Christian nation today statistically. Just the numbers, just the numbers. From 2010 to 2020, Americans who, who um, didn't identify as Christians, so in all the current surveys, this group that's rising faster than any other group is the nuns, N-O-N-E-S. The nuns are people who say, I have no religious affiliation. I'm not committed to any ultimate view of life. The nuns are the group that's growing. So between 2010 and 2020, that group, so of adults in the U.S., rose from 16% to 28%. That's a 75% increase of adults in the U.S. in 10 years. Statistically also, of the adult Christians today, 
that identify as Christians, almost a third, 30% in the ensuing years will say, I'm a nun. That's the trajectory of all these numbers, the dynamics going on in the culture broadly. Um, one of the assessments based on the 2022 Pew Research poll on religious observance, etc., says uh, people are giving up on Christianity. They will continue to do so. He's not trying to be a prophet. He's just saying based on the trends and the numbers. If you're trying to predict the future religious landscape in America, according to Pew, the question is not whether Christianity will decline. It's how fast and how far. So you are part of a declining population. You're part of a group with a very declining presence in the country broadly. Pew predicts that if current trends continue, by 2070, that sounds like a long time down the road. Many of us won't be here in 2070, but you're really talking about a generation. In a generation, uh, those who, uh, adults in the states who uh, claim to be Christians will drop to about 35%, about one in three, from the current 64%, about two in three. Also stating, yeah, that about 30% of those currently identifying now will not then. And in, of that group, the 15 to 29-year-olds are the biggest group in which this uh, profession from Christianity to none is growing the most. And that's not to pick on that age group, but guys, what this means is as, as we age, that you're going to have a bit of the population that just has this significant amount of missing Christians in a generation. So this is huge. Yeah, so this is a big thing. So, so the first thing is the people claiming Christ is dropping quickly. It's not slow. In fact, I think historically it's unprecedented. Here's the second thing. Fewer people who used to attend local church services regularly, and regularly here is just once a month or more. This is not a high hurdle. Once a month or more has dropped. If you remember during COVID, immediately afterwards, it was at least 30% who had been attending church at least once a month were no longer attending church. Now, some of that's rebounded. 53% of Protestants before COVID attended church services is that a good number? <laughs> About half of professing Protestant Christians were attending church at least once a month pre-COVID. That number is about 46% as of last year. Not a huge drop, but a significant drop in a, in a number that wasn't impressive to begin with. And third, and here's the one that frankly remains my greatest concern. And I'm going to qualify before I give you these numbers. I want you to know that the people that, that answer these questions reflected in this data, they are, they are uh, people that would fit right in at Lion and Lamb Church. These are, so these are qualified as, they, these are evangelicals. They're, they're your brothers and sisters in the faith and mine by what they claim. These are the four things they claim. The Bible's the highest priority for what I believe. It's very important for me to personally share uh, the, the gospel with non-Christians, trust in Christ. Jesus Christ's death on the cross is the only sacrifice that could remove the penalty of sin, and only those who trust in Christ alone as their Savior receive God's free gift of eternal salvation. They'd fit in this church, right? They'd sit next to you and me. Absolutely. Now, listen to the data from our group. These are our people. 48% of evangelicals believe God learns over time and adopts himself to different circumstances. God is not omniscient. 
So half of this group, evangelicals, say God is not omniscient. He's on the learning curve, just like you and me. He's responding to life as it happens. 65, so one and two. 65, almost two of three, evangelicals believe humans are born in a state of innocence before God. So they don't know that Romans 3 says there's none righteous. They don't know that Romans 5 says every descendant of Adam shares Adam's sin. They don't know Psalm 51 that we're conceived in sin. Not because people are trying to be bad, but because that's just the nature of our fallen humanity. Uh, 43%, almost half, believe Jesus was a great teacher, but not God. 26% of evangelicals believe the Bible, like other sacred writings, contains helpful accounts of ancient myths, but is not literally true, or is not entirely true. 37% agree that your gender is a matter of your choice. And 28% agreed that the Bible's condemnation of homosexual behavior doesn't apply today. So those are people that share our basic belief systems. In our present distress, fewer people are calling themselves followers of Jesus. Fewer of them are regularly attending a local church. And among those who are, fewer still hold biblical views on significant issues. Friends, that is a present distress. That's the church. That's the place that God works from and in. That's distressing. If you move to the culture, and some of these metrics may be more or less meaningful to you. I'm just giving several. They all affect everyone in one way or another, more or less significantly. The one that I find most um, damning is the last one I'll share. Uh, financially, the U.S. debt stands at $34 trillion dollars. Now, guys, I know for some of us, this sounds meaningless. Life goes on. You remember what God promised Israel in the law? If you obey me, you'll lend, you won't borrow. We are a debtor nation. So every American citizen is on the hook to Uncle Sam for just the federal debt, not, anything, not any other debt, just the federal debt, $100,000. If you're a taxpayer, you're in debt to Uncle Sam over a quarter million dollars. You know, I told my little uh, five-year-old uh, grandson today, did you know you're $100,000 in debt? <laughs> you, Uncle Sam, a lot of money, man. You can't, you can't borrow your way to fiscal health, and this affects everything. I think the debt payment alone was, uh, well, I won't even say it. You, you can go, there's a website. And the numbers just scroll because it shows you what the debt, mounting debt looks like. This affects everybody in the United States, big time. Politically, this nation appears more and more a banana republic than the nation uniquely blessed by God. This is not just my opinion either. Uh, federal agencies have inarguably been weaponized against politicians they don't favor. Uh, the Colorado Supreme Court removed a presidential candidate from their ballot unilaterally on a charge that the guy hasn't even been in court over and hasn't been found guilty of. And a secretary of state in the Northeast United States took him off the ballot as well. There's no crime. There's no conviction. There's accusations. Guys, do you know this is what second and third world countries do? And this is the United States? Is it any wonder that people have almost no trust or confidence in the political system or the judicial system? Because it, you never know where a thing's going to go. On families, <clears throat> the, 
marriage, the normal state for most adults throughout history, has definitely fallen on hard times. One in four, 25% of all 40-year-old adults in the U.S. have never been married. Now, that's not a slam on unmarried adults, okay? In fact, Paul was encouraging adults to stay single so they could serve the Lord. But here's the thing. Historically, these numbers, they're without precedent. The world has never seen numbers like this before. And most of the single adults I know, they're not choosing to be single to honor the Lord. They haven't found a spouse. And that's become more and more the case. This is without historic precedent. Most of us want to get married and raise a family. That's just the way God's wired most of us. That's the norm. That norm has fallen out. You're just not seeing it across the board in the U.S. today. There are fewer married adults in the U.S. today than unmarried. That was as of last year. That was a historic first. Never seen it in the history of the nation before. Divorce rates are down. And you say, oh, that's a good thing. Well, here's the thing. There are fewer marriages and there's more cohabiting. You're breaking up fewer marriages because fewer people are getting married. In some states like California, local state government has become communistic. California is the worst, if you follow their legislation at all. Like communism in Russia before, the state has said, we are the ultimate determiner on what your children do. On where they go or whether we approve of your parenting, we are the final arbiter. You as the parents are not. You know, we've got two, we have two families that left California because of the state of the state there related to children, especially. This is, this is a big thing. This is a big deal. Regionally, guys, the nation is fracturing. Now, if, if you go back to the Civil War and people say, well, man, look at the division of the Civil War and, and huge, right? Mason-Dixon line, North versus South, states' rights and slavery, you know, and we're at war with each other clean line across. But here's what's happening today. There's not a north and the south. There's a red and a blue. And guys, red states are getting redder and blue states are getting bluer. And so what you have is not a a simple geographical divide. What you have now is regional divide. You you know, there's there's a historic migration going on in the United States today. Conservatives leaving California, especially, but not only California, New York, northeastern states, conservatives to move to places like Texas, Tennessee, I want to say uh, Utah or Idaho, states that are more conservative. Conservative areas are getting more conservative. Liberal areas are getting more liberal. There's a huge, huge point of division in politics that's affecting the way everybody lives. And it is why there's the incredibly historic migration going on in the United States today. It's not over. Still going on, been, been going on at least since COVID began in earnest. Internationally, uh, the war in Ukraine, still going on. How's that going to end? We don't know. Uh, China, did you read, uh, President Xi told President Biden, we are taking Taiwan. It's not if. It's only when. I'm just telling you up front, we are taking Taiwan. And most of the U.S. military experts say it'll be in 2025. It won't won't go beyond 2025. What will that look like? Not just for Taiwan, but for the U.S. and everyone else in the region. Now, here's here's the biggest thing for me internationally. Friends, Israel, whatever you think of them, Israel is a bellwether for what God does. Israel, the nation of Israel, is a bellwether for what God does. Think of this just historically Old Testament. 
God told Israel, when you guys get this bad, when you're distressed, your sin is so far down, I'm going to remove you from the land of promise. I'm going to send you to Babylon. And so he did. So the Jews were without a nation. They were without a homeland as a people group in the Babylonian captivity. Just, so just call it roughly 600 to 550 B.C. But do you know what? We knew the Jews had to go back to the land of promise. And do you know why we knew that? Because God said a baby was going to be born in Bethlehem in a Jewish nation. He was going to grow up in Galilee. Do you, you see where I'm saying? They had to move back. They had to occupy the land of promise again because the promises of God said, I have promises and they're all tied to my son. Well, guess what? So from 70 AD, destruction of the temple, destruction of Jerusalem, no homeland, no nation of the Jews for almost 2,000 years until 1948. Why did the Jews have to be back in the land? Why did there have to be a nation of Israel again? Because all the prophetic promises of God related to the return of Jesus and his rule on the earth, they're all tied to Israel. So you go back, go back to Daniel, go to Zechariah 14 or Matthew 24, or Luke 21. All the references are Israel. Israel is the bellwether. And guys, when Jesus returns to the earth, Zechariah 14, the armies of the nations are surrounding Jerusalem. It's an island in the storm when Jesus returns. And what do you see today? Israel's in the land, and what's going on? They're attacked on the north. They're attacked on the south. They're attacked in the western bank. This, this is a bellwether for me. Guys, I'm always careful about time. I don't say I think Jesus is coming at a certain time here or there. But I am looking at the big pieces of the puzzle and the dynamics for Jesus appearing look like they're pretty well in place. Israel is a bellwether. This is unique, sort of in the big picture again. If we're living for the glory of God with the thought of looking for the appearing of Christ, which we're encouraged to do, that's a thing for us today. Besides our present distress, where are we in the bigger counsels of God time-wise? And guys, here's the thing for me. This may not sound most notable to you, but it is for me. It's the loss of truth as a concept. The loss of truth as a concept. When you read the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, and for many of you I know, because I've heard, Isaiah 6 is a high water mark in the Old Testament. When Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up in the temple. And Isaiah, to God's query, by the way, who should we send? I wonder who we could get. And Isaiah raises his hand, send me, send me. But do you remember Isaiah, you know, he's the prince of the prophets, right? But what's God's message to Isaiah? I'm going to send you this people. Guys, he's a prophet of judgment. Everybody calls Jeremiah the weeping prophet, the prophet of judgment. Isaiah is a prophet of judgment. And what's he say? You're going to go to this people. They're going to see, but they're not going to understand. They're going to hear, but they're not going to comprehend. In fact, he says, lest they, they soften their hearts and turn and repent, they're not going to. And that's exactly what you see in the Gospels when Jesus tells the parables. Why does he tell parables? Because Israel's under judgment. And when God speaks to us in parables, and in fact, Jesus in John's Gospel quotes Isaiah 6. This is why. Because his people, they're under judgment. When a people can't discern truth, it's a symbol of God's judgment. We don't have eyes to see. We don't have ears to comprehend. That's a symbol of judgment. And guys, the world we occupy has thrown truth away as if it doesn't exist. So here's just a couple of examples. 
government and culture broadly are supporting the idea that we can change our identity as male or female, though everyone knows this is biologically impossible. Guys, you can mutilate a body any way you want. You can't change the coding in every cell in your body. You know, God said he made them male and female. Guess what? We're made male or female. And you can hide the fact, but you can't get away from it. And to, do, to say you can is lunacy. It is irrational. You have to give up the thought of truth and rationality to buy into this lie. And guess what? The country's chasing it wholesale. And these poor people that are literally being mutilated, generally young, young boys and young girls, they're going to spend the rest of their life on medications trying to do something to their bodies that their bodies don't want. And it's because somebody says, you can do this, even though God says, well, really, you can't. It's an impossibility. It's a lie. But what are we doing? We're saying, oh, we bring it on. You know, I just read the other day, it's a picture, and it says, so-and-so breaks women's record, and it was track and field of some sort, and so-and-so is a guy. He hasn't even tried to look like a girl, but he says, I'm a girl. So he's competing on the girls' sports team, and he's breaking girls' records. And other real girls are being harmed by pseudo-girls who are participating in their sports, and they're just big, strong guys. In what? If you just told people 20 or 30 years ago, we're going to say that that men are women and they can compete in women's sports, you'd have thought, no way. But we're there. We're there. The culture has given up on the very notion of truth. One of, the, one of my favorite images of this, this is Isaiah 59, 14. It says, truth has stumbled in the streets. Truth has come to our town and it fell down in the street and there's no one to help it up because lies are the preference. Read Isaiah 59, by the way, if you want a description of our present distress, Isaiah 59. One of the most notable signs of distress is the inability to recognize truth. It's a symbol of God's judgment on Isaiah. You see it in the Gospels. And in 2 Thessalonians 2, guys, this is just like what God did to Pharaoh in the Exodus account. It's the same thing. And in 2 Thessalonians 2, it says, because they did not receive the love of the truth, God, now understand this, God will send them strong delusion. The world says to God, we want to embrace lies, and God says to the world, lies you shall have. I don't think we're there yet, but I think, I think we're pretty close. The world is not only consumed in a host of acute distresses, but the larger elements Jesus said would proceed his second coming appear to be coming into focus as well. The present distress and where we sit in the larger scheme of things. So, you know, I said I wouldn't depress you. But I'm not sure on the looks on your faces. So seriously, so Paul told them, hey, take a hard look, take a, take a clear-eyed assessment of where you're at today and what's going on. And put that in the bigger frame of what God's up to ultimately. And what does that require? How, how do we negotiate this thing wisely? See, I think when we see this stuff, this should steal us. This should reinforce us in our determination to live wide-eyed, clear-eyed, intentionally, prayerfully, certainly without fear, without anxiety, 
but just taking into account where God's put us. Do you know God's will for your life is good? God's will for our life is good. And if we, he's put us in this time and place, that's a good thing. And it's a good place and it's a good time for us to be. And it's a good time for us to represent Christ to others. Yep. I hope that we accept the challenge of our own time as brothers and sisters in arms and in faith have done since Jesus' first coming. You know, it was a pretty distressing time under Roman persecutions in the first 300 years of the church. And you know what? They passed the baton of faith on. We have it today because they kept the faith in their own day. I hope that having a keen understanding of the times gives us a clear sense of how best to represent our King to others who profess Christ's name as well as to the wider world. Friends, it remains a great time and a great place to be a Christian. Here's a couple of thoughts. To those in the church, guys, we need to be aware that people are de-churching. They're walking away from the faith. We want to make sure in the church, in the body of Christ in which we rub elbows, we want to make sure that if somebody's struggling, we're, we know it, we're there for each other, we're praying for each other, we're being real with each other. Listen to this, this is from 1 Thessalonians 5, remember this is in the context of Jesus appearing, 1 Thessalonians 4 going into 5, 1 Thessalonians 5, 14, admonish the idle, that's the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all. It's like, have this mind that I'm aware of what's going on in the life of my brother, and in any of the ways that I encourage and strengthen them, I'm there for them. Uh, we need to be doing that for each other. And the hotter things get, the more difficult they get for Christians, the more Christians need to be available for each other to encourage, provide, support, you name it. That's a given. Uh, also, Hebrews 10.24, consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, don't neglect meeting together as the habit of some. Encourage one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. As the day of Christ appears, we're supposed to be thinking about, okay, there's an end. Don't know how, how close I am to it, but I'm to be encouraging myself and encouraging others. We, we want to stay in the race. You know, this is a little bit like Hebrews uh, 12, that we're sort of in the marathon race and, and we're going to head into the arena and the saints that have gone before, they're there and they're going to cheer us on as we finish our own race. But, but it takes some doing, it takes some effort, it takes some thought on our part, not only for ourselves, but for each other. Uh, leave no one behind is a military term and that's the thought we want to bring in. We need to intentionally be there for each other. So if we're not doing okay, does somebody else, do they know that? If I'm not showing up on Sunday morning to our home or fellowship groups, does, is somebody aware of that? And if they ask me how I'm doing, am I willing to give an honest answer? Th these kinds of things. We need to be there for each other. In the wider culture, and this is my concern here is this on the wider culture. If we don't recognize how out of line, how insane this world is right now, then guys, we won't operate wisely. So you know the book, Alice in Wonderland? We went down the hole. We're upside down in a different world than we were in before. And we live almost literally in an insane asylum in which the folks running the asylum and the patients, you can't tell the difference. And I'm serious about this. Policies... Uh, judicial issues, political issues, what is going on? 
This is an upside-down world. It's an upside-down culture. If we're not aware of that, we're hugely, hugely out of what is going on around us. Our culture has lost its collective mind, rationality, and sanity. Listen to this from Acts 26. And I love this. In Acts 26, Paul has the opportunity. He's before a Roman governor. He's before uh, one of Herod's uh, grandsons, I think, Agrippa, and his sister Bernice. He's before royalty and, and political heavyweights, and he's before those that are with them. And he's sharing his testimony about how God saved him and what God's call in his life was. And as he's doing this, Festus says, uh, Festus, in fact, he, he cries out with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. You've lost it, buddy. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. And Paul's just saying, this is what God did, and this is what I've been called to. And this is what Paul said. He's not put off. Guys, you know what? He wasn't embarrassed. He didn't have to figure out a clever comeback. He wasn't embarrassed. This is what he said. He said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. I'm speaking true and rational words. Now, he doesn't say to Festus, you're out of your mind, but Festus is the one who's not tied to reality, not Paul, and Paul knows it. And so he's just free to stand up and say, no, these are true and rational words. In fact, I love... Uh, Agrippa says, in a short time, you would persuade me to be a Christian. Paul said, well, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am except for these chains. Paul's like, I'm good. Think of me whatever you want. Just trust Christ. You know, see me as a nut. Okay, I'm good with that. Trust Christ. And here's the thing. The gospel, the truth about Jesus, who he is and what he did, it's, it remains the truth of all truths. And guys, it's still what God uses. It's the power of God for salvation, the gospel. It hasn't changed. It's got the same power today. It had last year and a generation ago and millennia ago. The gospel. So, so we're still sharing the gospel with those around us. And guys, you know what else we're doing? We are reading our Bibles. And why is that? Because the Bible is the truth. So that when we speak to our own souls, when we interact with others, we tell ourselves the truth. You know, what's the shield of faith? What's faith predicated on? This Ephesians 6, faith is predicated on knowing the truth. What's the sword of the Spirit? It is the Word of God. Everything about our spiritual armor ties to the person of Christ and the Word of God. So we, this, the truth that we knew last year and a decade ago, it's true today. And the message about Christ is still what God uses to bring people to faith. We don't quit sharing and we don't quit stealing our own mind and encouraging each other with the truth from God's Word. We are powerless without it. If we fit comfortably into this world system opposed to Christ, it may be that like Abraham's nephew Lot and his family, we've simply grown dull too long in heart and soul in the city of destruction. That's my concern for us. And that's my concern for the church. Are we like Lot? Lot thinks he's okay in Sodom. God says, this place is so wicked and so bad, we're taking it out. And Lot's like, well, maybe this little, little ungodly city over here, would, would, could we live over there? Well, we'll let you run over to little Zoar. Do you see what I'm saying? Are, are we, have we become the frogs in the kettle that the heat has turned up and we don't know it because it's been gradual? Are we Lot? We've got to be careful. I'm serious on this. Serious is a heart attack. 
We've got to have God's view of our times. Present distress, big picture as well. If we don't, we simply cannot live in a way that most fully honors Him. Our call, right, is to live for the glory of God. So, ladies, if you're doing diapers and dishes, you can do that to the glory of God in the present distress, looking for Christ's appearing, right? If we're working eight to five, Ephesians, Colossians both say the same thing. Whatever you do, do your work all for the glory of God. That doesn't change. For some of us, we take a hard-headed, clear-eyed look at the world around us and kind of what we're thinking about doing, what that might look like. We might change nothing. And we say, well, good, we're, we're good to go. But we thought through it and we realized, nope, we're on a good plan. But we might take a clear-eyed look and look at this, the situation as it is, and we might say, Lord, I need to change some things, or I need to think again about some plans that I was going to make. And that would be fine too. Remember, in Corinthians, Paul says, if you marry, that's okay. If you stay single, that's okay. He sort of says better. But it's not as if one thing versus another is the problem. It's what's God's call on us. It's looking at our life in this time, and where God's put us, and how He's gifted and called us, and what, what does a clear-eyed, wise assessment of the present distress and the bigger frame that we occupy in God's ultimate plans, seeing Christ, where does that lie? What's the best way for us to live forward in all that? That's really the challenge. So last day of 23, looking into 24, it's a good time to assess. And, and by the way, there's no burden on you from anything I'm saying today. Uh, God, when He speaks to us, the Spirit of God is liberty. So if He wants us to change plans, He will, he will make that clear and it will bring greater freedom, not some sense of burden or I've, I've got to do something. So that's really, Lord, what do you want for us? What do you want for me? What is wisdom as life is now thrown at us? What does that require? How do we most fully honor you? That's really what we're talking about. So if you would, please stand. Let me pray as you do, and then we'll read Titus 2. God, give us a mind for what matters to you. Lord Jesus, help us to see you as the ultimate end and goal of all that we do. Would you flood us, fill us, overflow us with the power and presence of your Holy Spirit and the truth, Lord, of your word, so that we can properly, in a way that fulfills all your good plans, properly fulfill the time and the place you've given us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's read from Titus, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our Savior Jesus Christ, self for and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. 